Hello and uh, welcome to Pep Talk, the persuasive evangelism podcast. Uh, I'm Andy Bannister and I'm joined by my co-host Christy Mayer. Christy, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. And yourself, Andy? Pretty good up here in Scotland. Well, I'm excited by the guest uh, we have with us uh, today. Christy, we are joined, aren't we, on the show today by uh, Mike Pierce, uh, mm-hmm. who's joining us across the Atlantic uh, by the wonders of technology. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Still bleary-eyed over here at nine in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to this conversation immensely, not least because Christy and I were just chatting um, before the show and I was sort of filling in on Mike. You and I go a long way back, actually, don't we? I, I try not to think about it. Back to a previous existence, yes. It does feel like 2000, I think, was when we met when I was studying at a London School of Theology, London Bible College as it was then, and you had the unenviable task, I think, of teaching combination of church history, ethics, and generally being belligerent, I think, was the, was the combination. With, with a major on the last of those, yes. Very much so. So all of my you know, slightly sarcastic view of the world, I do, I do sort of uh, trace to I you. I know, it's my fault. Yes. I know, exactly. Well, uh, kind of introductions aside, I mean, one of the things that I... Uh, really admire about you, Mike, is you've written very widely, got a whole wide range uh, of interest, and that's reflected in uh, in what you've written. And one of the most, I think, I think it is actually your most recent book, isn't it? Um, Gods of War uh, is where I'd love to begin our conversation today. So one of the things we often hear in our culture, perhaps from the certainly from some of the big atheist names like Dawkins and others, uh, but now it's kind of trickled down into the everyday level, is this idea that religion uh, in general, perhaps Christianity in particular, is inherently bad, inherently evil because it causes war, it causes violence, the world would be better off without it. And I know many Christians, Mike, who I think not so much engaging at that very high level, but they just want to share their faith with their friend at work, at school, down the pub, and their friend has just heard this online, read it somewhere, throws it back at them. And I think Christians often feel quite wrong-footed. I mean, nobody wants to apologise yeah. for violence. They don't know what to say. They're not skilled and equipped. You've read a whole book on this. Help us yeah. think this through. Is religion inherently violent? Do Christians, do Christians have a problem here? How can we perhaps uh, find our way into this conversation when friends raise this? I, I don't think this issue began with the new atheists. In fact, I, I remember, and goodness, I'm hundreds of years old now. Um, I, I remember this uh kind of idea being waved around even when I was a, a child or a teenager before I was a Christian actually you know our oh, religion causes all the wars in the world in the world uh, uh, that's rather strange because you know at that time the most recent conflict uh, big one was uh, the second world war which had not been caused by religion so it, it is nevertheless a very uh, long-standing idea uh, and has just been kind of revivified as it were uh, and there's certainly something in it. Uh, certainly, it's not the cause of all the wars in the world. But the the, the trouble is um, that all civilizations, all cultures generally have uh, a religious background. They're built upon a religious framework. And we can we don't have to look any further than the postmodern West and its dismal failure in this area. Uh, you know, the attempt to build something on non-religion or irreligion to see that, that the, the historic cultures that humanity's created are built on some kind of religious framework. And people will fight for their, uh, their culture, the kind of world that they feel comfortable in if those are threatened. And when that happens, they will reach for what seems like the highest moral port of call, so to speak, to defend themselves, to say, this is why I am doing this. Take, for example, um, you and I, supposing we had a really serious 
argument or a row, let's say a personalized row about something, then we would reach for some kind of moral justification, each of us. And what lies at the back of that? Well, some understanding of the will of God. And, and instantly, God gets weaponized in our own disputes. Now, if that happens at a perfectly trivial level, we can all see how that can happen at um, a much bigger level. Um, I'd want to make um, a couple of important points about that. Firstly, that um, although we're all familiar with the idea of Christendom, the idea of Christian countries, that's not what Christianity is set up to be at all. And for the first rather more than 300 years of its existence, it, it wasn't that. Uh, it was, in sociological terms, a sect. It was persecuted by the Roman Empire. It was deliberately set up, and you, you don't have to look any further than the Sermon on the Mount, um, set up by Jesus um, to be something that's not capable of running a wider political community. So we'd have to say that the what we call Christendom, uh, Catholic, Orthodox, and in more recent centuries, Protestant countries, that's not actually what Christianity was in the first place. Um, the second thing I'd want to say is that whilst religion can trigger conflict, and there are a number of instances of that, and I outline them in my book and look into them and how this happened, um, it's at least as true to say that war generates religion. Now, if that sounds rather strange, uh, we just need to look at what actually happens in some of these conflicts. Um, I think you want to talk to me in a few minutes about my experience in Central and Eastern Europe. And I first got started getting very seriously involved in that part of the world um, in the 1990s when Yugoslavia was breaking up. A lot of people would point to that and say, well, there you are, as a prime instance. Um, uh, Croats are Catholics, uh, Serbs are Orthodox, and the language differences between them are trivial. Really, this is a battle about religion. Well, yes except that most of the people concerned were not personally religious at all. What they were fighting about was a form of identity and a culture that they felt comfortable with. Sure. One of the things I noticed when I was there was the way in which the churches in the, during and in the aftermath of the war were absolutely jam-packed. Um, and that was because people were suffering, dying, they were living extremely hard lives because of the war, and they needed the spiritual consolation and wanted to know, what, why are we doing this? Why are we suffering all of this? Uh, I, I walked past churches on a Sunday morning and the, uh, the mass was going on completely full and dozens and dozens of people outside on the doorstep listening in through the open doorways. You go back to Croatia now, it's not like that. Um, why? Because the country has now been at peace for 20 years. People are more comfortable. Uh, many of them have reverted to their rather more secular lives. Now, as Christians, we might lament that fact, mm. but it is a fact. Um, we've seen this in uh, countless conflicts where uh, conditions of war actually make people more religious. It may be in a very superficial sense. Uh, we might jeeringly say, oh, well, it's people cramming for their finals, as it were, if they don't know that they're going to die at any moment. Um, but it's, it's also people looking for consolation and direction in frightening circumstances. 
that's really helpful. Christy, what's your kind of perspective on on some of that? I, I think that's such a helpful way in which to kind of think about uh, the role of religion um, in this in this dialogue, Mike. I was just thinking, what would what would be uh, how would you kind of synthesize some of those things so that for us in in the workplace, if somebody was to say, well, you know, religion is bad because of war, or even worse, you know, that means that therefore God himself is um, unjust, tyrannical kind of despot. How, what kind of um, pointers would you give us as to what kind of questions we could ask? How could we steer that conversation just to try and synthesize some of these great things that you've been sharing? Well, I think I think sometimes uh, rather than come back maybe with a kind of long spiel that I just gave, uh, counter questions are always good. Uh, perhaps people asking, well, are are all religions the same in this respect? Are some more belligerent than others? Can we think of one that constantly directs people towards peace? Um, of course, that that's a little tricky because we can all think of a number of Christians, both in the past and the present, who uh, do far less than living up to uh, where Jesus points us to in terms of that ideal. But But that kind of question, I think, can be useful. If we look at something like the sort of the Northern Ireland conflict in the fairly recent past, um, it's worth asking um, how many of those people involved at the actual level of the conflict were devout, because of course almost none of the none of the terrorists were. The uh, IRA uh, terrorists tended to be Marxists, and the uh, the loyalist terrorists also tended not exactly to be devout Presbyterians, even if they came from that general culture. So. Um, I think those kinds of questions are, are worth asking in that context. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's helpful advice. Uh, on that last point, Mike, I remember a lovely story that the the late uh, atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens shared. Not, I think, fully realizing how it didn't actually help his case. He, uh, you know, told the story of a friend of his who was who was driving somewhere in a in a, in Ireland during the troubles. And I got uh, pulled over at a paramilitary checkpoint and a sort of scary looking gentleman with a balaclava, you know, pointed a gun through the window and uh, demanded to know whether he was a Catholic or a Protestant. To which Christopher's friend went, well, no, no, I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. Just like Paul's. And then the question came back, Catholic atheist or Protestant atheist? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought that actually I don't think Chris realized how much that helped our case, because to go is exactly as you say, that's not that's not religion there rather than the bigger identity marker. Yes. Yes. I mean, we could talk so long on on this one but i did want to you hinted at it a, a moment ago one of your answers wanted to get into to another part of your your story because i think as i said you've written quite widely on quite different topics have some quite different life experiences and and one of the um things that you've been involved in for a for a while uh, certainly for a good chunk of the time that i've known you has been you know these regular trips that you've made to out to eastern europe very much getting involved in sort of the life of the church there and teaching taking yeah. uh western students out to experience uh, that and one of the things I find fascinating we often think about you know those those perhaps those churches in some like Eastern Europe as gosh they haven't got the resources that we have and life must be tough and so on and so forth and that's probably true I'm quite intrigued to, I suppose to pitch the question to you are there things that you've we've we've we, you've seen uh, in those churches in those kinds of contexts that perhaps we can learn from the other way around because one of the beauties of the diversity of, of the body of Christ is that actually we can learn a lot from each other. I'm intrigued to, to know whether there is any, anything that you've learned from your experience there that's perhaps shaped how you've thought about the gospel back here in the West. 
Well, uh, yes, I, I've certainly been involved there a long time. Actually, since just a few years before we got to know each other, Andy, I've been involved there for very nearly a quarter of a century now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've learned, I, I like to say that uh, most of the important things I've ever learned in my life have been taught me by the Balkans. Um in terms of the, the interactions of very different kinds of people, about different civilizations bumping up against one another, the, the Catholic and Protestant West meeting the Orthodox East, meeting the Muslim world, and they, they kind of clang there, often interacting very, very wonderfully and creatively, but sometimes, as we saw in the 1990s, going off bang in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, I've mostly been involved with the uh, generally very small uh, evangelical churches there. Um, and they, like the, the larger Catholic and Orthodox churches, faced a lot of pressure during the communist years, rather less in Tito's Yugoslavia, it has to be said, than in the Soviet bloc countries. But nevertheless, uh, quite often um, a hard time. Um, and I, I, I think what tended to happen during those years for many of them, particularly in Croatia and Serbia, is that they got stuck in a kind of a time warp uh, that they have not easily managed to break out of. Um, uh, I'm much more encouraged by what's been going on in um, uh, North Macedonia, as we must call it, over the last few months. It was Macedonia until its name agreement with Greece a few months ago where the church, if anything, was the, the evangelical churches were even tinier, but have grown. Um, uh, I don't want to overstate this, but they have much more than doubled in size um, over the last uh, 20 years or so, um, just because of finding creative ways of evangelism and breaking out of the cultural boxes that they were in danger of um, pasting themselves into, and which uh, in Croatia and Serbia, I'm afraid, they, they largely did. So um, <clears throat> that's been pretty exciting. Um, I think one of the, um, the problems for those kinds of churches is that uh, where they are particularly small, if they remain that way for a long time, then it tends to be a kind of a family of families and it then becomes particularly hard for outsiders to come in, even if they wanted to. You know, even if they, they do make a convert, they come in and find, wait a minute, all these people have known one another for generations back, and I'm never going to fit in. So that's the kind of sort of stagnant pool effect. And that needs to be um, avoided and forfended at, at all costs. Um, but um, leaving aside some of those rather painful issues quite often, I mean, these are people who uh, very often have suffered an awful lot for their faith over years and have often been uh, refined by it and um, it can be a real inspiration to many of us who um, comparatively speaking have much much easier lives. Um, uh, one particular individual that um, a number of people will have heard of because he's quite famous is um, Miroslav Volf. He's one of the leading theologians in the world now and his father um, was one of the leaders of the Pentecostal movement in communist Yugoslavia. And um, he and, and the whole family um, really did uh, have a very hard time under the communist authorities. Um, 
and it's kind of kind of refined him, um, caused him to think through so many issues of his faith. Uh, his amazing book back in the 1990s, um, Exclusion and Embrace. It, it's a very very weighty. Uh, theological tome. It's not for the uh, intellectually faint of heart, um, but nevertheless is a wonderful um, reflection in a way on that experience and on the, the pain of the breakup of Yugoslavia and um, thinking through theologically uh, how we relate to one another, how our identities are bound up with one another, how God interacts with each person. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it has... I found it a, a huge inspiration, really, over many, many years. It's hilarious, just utterly fascinating, Mike. I mean, as a as a Hungarian, I can completely resonate with much of, of what you're saying from like central European right. experience. Um, we're running out of time. Just one final question um, for you, Mike. I mean, Christians sometimes despair when you know they look at the church in the West or where culture is going. But as a historian, you have the benefit of a long view. Of you. Does that help, help give a perspective on sharing the gospel as a Christian during the troubled times that we're in today, do you think? Uh, yes, I, I, I suffer from what could be looked at as a besetting sin of academics, uh, but I find it a huge benefit, actually, um, that it becomes almost impossible for me not to take the long view of whatever it is that's in front of my eyes at that moment. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that is an advantage because it means you don't simply get obsessed by some uh, local difficulty or local problem, however overwhelming it may seem in this time and place. So if one is, for example, uh, a rather besieged Christian in work in Britain in 2019, it may look as though Christianity is collapsing, um, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, uh, aggressive secularists are taking over, uh, and what have you. But that's not the global picture, even right now, uh, let alone the sort of nadir of human experience across thousands of years. So, so yeah, I do find that not simply a consolation, um, uh, you know, but Boethius consolation of philosophy idea ringing in my ears there, uh, but but actually a real encouragement, um, uh, a real motivation. No, something can be done here, um, even if present circumstances don't look good. Yes, it's funny you um you mentioned the motivation piece. I remember that really striking me in my in my in my twenties as I first began to think a bit more historically, and suddenly realised that there was this line of kind of sort of two thousand years worth of christians before me and i remember getting a sense sort of uh, occasionally of you know two thousand years worth of christians looking over my shoulder going bannister we have passed this torch on down all these centuries <laughs> let's make sure your generation aren't the one who drop it but, but, but that's exactly what is happening and and i think if we um i mean we we, we all know that we're supposed to look at our lives you know subspeque eternitatis in the light of eternity and and that's good we we do need to do that though most of us don't but just looking at our lives in the light of the last 2000 years would also simply revolutionize our thinking yes mike there's uh we've covered so much uh in this is 20 minutes it feels like we could have done at least sort of four podcasts off different tangents from uh from what you've raised thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us and blessings on your uh, on your travels and uh, I hope listeners have enjoyed uh, this and there'll be links uh, with the podcast uh, some of the things you've written so really encourage people who've uh, been listening to this who've been intrigued uh, by some of what you said to, to dig deeper in some of this stuff 
Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you, Christy. It was a real joy to be with you. Thank you so much, Mike. And uh, we'll see you uh, on the podcast next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Pep Talk. This podcast is supported by our listeners across the country and around the world. And if you'd like to make it possible for us to carry on producing Pep Talk, you can help us by going to our website at the peptalkpodcast.com and clicking on the support the podcast button. If you support the show for as little as £3 a month as a thank you, uh, we will send you a free copy of my book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, or you can choose Christie's book, uh, More Truth, and you'll have a lovely, warm feeling inside knowing that you're helping us make more episodes of Pep Talk.